Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 29, 1 Kings chapter 18. Well, we're in that section of the Bible that tells of a man who is perhaps the greatest prophet of God in the Bible, Elijah. And last time we witnessed how Yehovah used this great man to perform the first bodily resurrection recorded in the scriptures. When life was restored to the young son of a Gentile widow woman who was hosting Elijah as he hid from King Ahav of Israel and his murderous wife Jezebel. Now, Eliyahu was hiding because it was he that had pronounced a drought upon the land on account of King Ahav's sins and idolatry and it apparently began immediately. Now, what made the drought all the more severe was that the dew that is formed as a result of of natural moisture on the ground and in the air that condenses as it uh, reaches a certain temperature point, this also ceased to appear. This dew helped to water plants. It kept, kept them viable in the dry season. Now it's hard to imagine a level of oven-like dryness so complete as to not even allow the formation of the tiniest water droplets on the plants. But that is what happened. One can only surmise what physical discomfort that a complete lack of humidity brought upon those who were affected. And of course it ravaged the field crops and the tree crops of of every kind. It brought many people in the region to the point of starvation. Streams and wells dried up. The wild animals would have suffered. The domestic cattle and sheep would have died by the thousands. But as near as we can tell, what made the drought obviously supernatural is that it generally affected only the northern Israelite tribal territories and the land of Sidon and Tyre. There is no record of failed crops and starvation for the southern kingdom of Judah. Or is there for other nations that surrounded the kingdom of Israel? And this is because the drought was God's wrath upon Israel and upon Sidon and Tyre. Israel we can understand because it was Ahav's and Jezebel's kingdom. But why Sidon and Tyre? Because Ahav's powerful and evil wife Jezebel was from Sidon and Tyre and her father was the king over that nation. It was Jezebel who brought Sidon's gods Baal and Ashtoreth with her and demanded that all Israel worship them. And she led the way in murdering God's prophets in a campaign of Jehovah worshiper extermination. Ironically, after Eliyahu spent perhaps the first year of his hiding on the east side of the Jordan River where he lived by a brook and he was miraculously brought food by ravens, God next sent him to hide in Jezebel's father's kingdom. In the city-state of Sidon, 
there was this village called Zarfat. And that is where Eliyahu lived with a poverty-stricken Gentile widow and her, and, uh, her son. So as we open our Bibles today at 1 Kings chapter 18, the drought has been ongoing for about three years. Conditions have become catastrophic. Unless something changes soon, King Ahab is not going to have any kingdom to rule over. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. That would be page 392 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 392. A long time passed. And then in the third year, the word of Adonai came to Eliyahu. Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send down, uh, send rain down on the land. And when Eliyahu went to present himself to Ahab, the famine in Shomron had become severe. Ahab called Ovadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Now Ovadiah, Obadiah, greatly revered Adonai. For example, when Isabel, Jezebel, was murdering. Adonai's prophets, Ovidyah took a, a hundred prophets, hid them in two caves, fifty in each, and he supplied them with food and water. And Ahav said to Obadiah, Go throughout the land and check all the springs and the wadis. Maybe we can find grass somewhere so that we can keep the horses and mules alive and not lose all the animals. So they divided between, so they divided between them the territory to be visited, and Ahab went one way by himself, and Ovadiah went the other way by himself. Ovadiah was on the road when suddenly Eliyahu encountered him. And Obadiah recognized him, and he fell on his face, and he says, Is it, is it really you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered, Yes, it is. It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. Obadiah replied, How have I sinned that you would hand your servant over to Ahab to kill me? As Adonai your God lives, there can't be a single nation or kingdom where my master hasn't sent to search you out. And in each kingdom or nation where they said, He isn't here, he made them take an oath that they hadn't found you. Now you say, Go tell your master, Elijah's here? But as soon as I leave you, the spirit of Adonai will, will, will carry you off to I don't know where. So that when I come and tell Ahab and he can't find you, he'll kill me. But I, your servant, have revered Adonai from my youth. Wasn't my Lord told what I did when Jezebel killed Adonai's prophets? How I hid a hundred of Adonai's prophets by fifties in caves and supplied their food and water? Now you say, go tell your master, look, Elijah is here. Why, he'd kill me. And Eliyahu said, as Adonai Zephot lives, before whom I stand, I will present myself to him today. So Avadiah went, he found Ahab, and he told him. And Ahab went to meet Eliyahu. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Well, is it really you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I haven't troubled Israel. You have. You and your father's house by abandoning Adonai's mitzvotis commandments and following the Baals. Now, order all Israel to assemble before me on Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 
Achav sent word to all the people of Israel and assembled the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Eliyahu stepped forward before all the people and said, How long are you going to jump back and forth between two, prop, uh, between two positions if Adonai is God, follow him? But if it's Baal, follow him. The people answered him not a word. And then Eliyahu said to the people, I, I alone am the only prophet of Adonai who is left. While Baal's prophets number 450. Let them give us two young bulls. They can choose the bull they want for themselves. Then let them cut it in pieces. Lay it on the wood. Put, put no fire under it. I will prepare the other bull. Lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God. I'll call on the name of Adonai. And the God who answers with fire, let him be God. And all the people answered, Good idea! Agreed. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves, prepare it first, because there are many of you, and then call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. They took the bull that was given to them, they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us! No voice was heard. No one answered. And as they jumped around on the altar they had made, around noon, began Eliyahu began ridiculing them. Shout louder! After all, he's a god, isn't he? Maybe he's daydreaming or he's on the potty. He's away on a trip. Maybe he's asleep. You better wake him up. So they shouted louder. They slashed themselves with swords, with knives, as their custom was until blood gushed out all over them. But now it was afternoon. And they went on ranting and raving till it was time for the evening offering. But no voice came. No one answered. No one paid any attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. All the people came up to him and as he set about repairing the altar of Adonai that had been broken down, Elijah took twelve stones in keeping with the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of Adonai had come, saying, Your name is to be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Adonai and then he dug a trench around the altar large enough for half a bushel of grain. He arranged the wood, he cut up the bowl, he laid it on the wood and then he said, fill four pots with water and pour it on the bird offering and on the wood. And they did it. Do it again, he said. They did it again. Do it a third time, he said. They did it a third time. By now the water was flowing around the altar. It had filled the trench. Then when it came time for offering the evening offering, Elijah the prophet approached and said, Adonai, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, Adonai, hear me, so that this people may know that you, Adonai, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back to you. Then the fire of Adonai fell. It consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones and the dust. It licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Adonai is God. 
Adonai is God. Eliyahu said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let one of them escape. They seized them and Eliyahu brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and he killed them there. And then Eliyahu said to Ahav, Get up, eat, drink, because I hear the sound of heavy rain. Ahav went up to eat and drink. Well, Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he bowed down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Now he said to his servant, Go up and look out towards the sea. And he went up and he looked and he said, There's nothing there. Seven times he said, Go again. The seventh time the servant said, Now there's a cloud coming up out of the sea, no bigger than a man's hand. And Eliyahu said, Go up and say to Ahav, prepare your chariot and get down the mountain before the rain stops you. And a little later, the sky grew black with clouds and wind and heavy rain began falling as Ahav riding in his chariot made for Jezreel. The hand of Adonai was on Eliyahu. He tucked up his clothing, he ran ahead of Ahav to the entrance of Jezreel. Great story. The opening words are that a long time passed. It's that way in most Bibles. But most literally it says it happened after many days. And we're told that it was in the third year of the, of the drought. And this is a generalization. It was not meant to be precise. We learn in other Bible books, including the New Testament passage we looked at last week, Luke 4, that the time of the drought from beginning to end was 42 months, three and one half years. And when this first verse says that Jehovah came to Elijah, it doesn't mean that he appeared to Elijah. Rather, it was in some form of dream or vision or powerful unction that Elijah was led to do what came next. This is more or less the standard way that a prophet of God received God's instructions. Now this first verse is also a reminder that whatever power Eliyahu seemed to possess, it was the Lord who was doing it all. There it says that God told Elijah that he would send rain. And Eliyahu was given permission to decide at times when to call on God's power. But the power was not Eliyahu's. No doubt, that's kind of a fine line. But one which most believers can properly nuance without too much trouble. And by that I mean we don't see Elijah as a sorcerer. However, in Elijah's day, because of the belief in multiple gods and because knowledge of the Torah and Yehovah was, was in decline due to the rampant apostasy in Israel, it was superstitions, it was pagan customs that the people believed in. So King Ahav was as fearful as he was angry with Elijah. And he blamed Elijah personally for the drought in the sense that it was some inherent power that Elijah held like a witch that created this lack of rainfall and the now pitiful condition of the land and the people. But here we must notice something else of greatest importance. See, in this chapter, 
we hear not one word of repentance among the people of Israel, or especially of Israel's leadership. Not one. Rather, they're just bitter as they sit wallowing in their misery and seem not even to sense why this calamity is happening, even though they were plainly told in advance. And what a lesson there is in this. Habitual sin and insistent rationalization of our bad behavior and of our ungodly religious observances Well, this leads to a destructive spiritual blindness within us. How often I've seen TV programs about criminals behind bars. In and out of prison all their lives, they are the most sad and miserable of people. And yet, because their sin is so habitual, they have spent so many years rationalizing away why they have no choice but to keep repeating their wicked ways, always blaming others, blaming society in general. They've virtually become that sin. That sin is personified in them. Repentance and change is all the more unlikely, although certainly not impossible. When a person or a nation has reached that point. The New Testament deals with this matter of spiritual life and death as well, and so we're going to take a short detour to discuss it. Now, unfortunately, the modern church has at times misunderstood what is being presented as a foundational principle in this regard, and it is this. It is one thing for a human to live a mostly righteous life and to wrongly trespass against God at times, even knowingly. But it's quite another to so enjoy one's own sin or to so fully embrace wicked behavior or to make a strong and willful decision to ignore God's commandments and go our own way that there is virtually no distinction any longer between the person and the sin. That is, one's personal identity becomes that sin. Paul speaks about this phenomenon in 1 Corinthians 6, but unfortunately most popular translations add some editorial license that causes believers to miss the point. And so it causes a lot of needless confusion. One such poor translation actually occurs in our complete Jewish Bibles. There we're told, don't turn there, I'm going to read it to you, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, through 10, it says this, Don't you know that unrighteous people will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't delude yourselves! People who engage in sex before marriage, who worship idols, who engage in sex after marriage with someone other than their spouse, who engage in active or passive homosexuality, who steal, who are greedy, who get drunk, who assail people with contemptuous language, who rob, none of them will share in the kingdom of God. Now these passages seem to say that a person who does any of these sinful things will have no share in the kingdom of God. However, the Young's literal translation that doesn't include 
the rather typical editorial license that translators often employ, says something a little different. It says this, Have ye not known that the unrighteous the reign of God shall not inherit? Be not led astray, neither whoremongers, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covet... Uh, covetous, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall the uh, the reign of God shall they inherit. Now, maybe you didn't catch the difference, but the difference is critical. And I have heard all sorts of pastoral and word gymnastics, all right, to try and explain how a person on one hand can commit one of these listed sins of Paul and be excluded from the kingdom, and yet on the other hand, be forgiven for it and not excluded. Here's the thing. Our complete Jewish Bible, and many others, the same ilk, those English translations focus on the sin. And it makes it that the commission of these sins excludes the sinner from the kingdom of God. But the better and uneditorialized Young's literal translation focuses not on the sin, but rather on the sinner. That is, in the complete Jewish Bible, we have a list of sins that a person might commit at some time or another in their lives and says that a commission of one of those sins means that person becomes ineligible for membership in God's kingdom. But the Young's literal translation correctly gives a list of people who have created such a close identity with some particular sin and they've so embraced that sin so thoroughly that the person and the sin have become one and the same. That person's identity is as one who has united themselves willingly and permanently with that particular wicked behavior and so they are given the same title as the name of the sin. The key, you see, is identification. In God's eyes, who we are is what we identify ourselves with. Who we are is what we identify ourselves with. If we identify with and embrace Christ, then we're Christians. If we identify with and embrace Baal, we're pagans. If we identify with and embrace thievery, we're thieves. If we identify with and embrace idols and graven images, then we are idolaters. But on the other hand, we can identify ourselves with Christ, but still uncharacteristically commit an act of stealing, commit a sexual sin, commit a lie. But we don't typically identify ourselves with that sin, and neither does the Lord. Oh, it's sin. It's wrong. And either on earth or on heaven, maybe both, there's going to be consequences for it. But in God's eyes, we've not become that sin. And that is because we can't both identify with Christ and identify with murdering, with homosexuality, 
with idolatry, among a whole list of other things. Even though some folks might think that they can. Now from God's perspective, where does one cross over this line from one who commits the sin to one who becomes identified with that sin and according to Paul is thus excluded from God's kingdom? I don't know. I don't know where that line is. That's God's judgment alone to make that determination. But it's a dangerous matter for us to carelessly dabble in any of these sins believing we can break free whenever we choose. Because just as one can dabble in illicit drugs but perhaps not become an addict, most get in too deep and they can't. And one can become so habitual in their sin and in making excuses for it that they become spiritually blind to their condition and to what identity they have actually chosen for themselves. And in these cases, God says He will turn you over to that sin. And thus, you will become identified not with Him, but with that sin. You're now lost. You're excluded from the kingdom. That is what Paul was speaking about. Is change possible? Theoretically, yes. And I've seen some folks make remarkable lifestyle changes for the good that I would have otherwise thought impossible. But I know of no situation in the Bible whereby it is stated that God has completely turned someone over to their sins and to their wickedness, which at times is referred to as hardening his heart, and from which that person returned. There is another way of describing that cosmic line in the sand where one becomes condemned if you step over it. But to be clear, this is not that when a person realizes their sinful identity and they want God to forgive them and instead they want to be identified with Him, that God might say no to that. Because what I just described is repentance. And if done in the name of Messiah Yeshua, God always, so far as I know, accepts it. Rather it is, you see, that a person becomes so entrenched in their identity with their sin that they either see nothing wrong in it, and maybe that sin becomes the center point of their life, Or perhaps they fear the consequences and they kind of want to hedge their bets. So now they want both. They want to identify with God in Christ and they want to identify with that sin and they want it all to be simultaneous. To that, God says no. Choose. One way, the other way. And we're going to see a great example of that exact scenario shortly here in our story of Elijah. And after the Lord tells Elijah he's to go to King Ahab and that there will be rain, the rest of the story explains 
what happened in the process of accomplishing this divine assignment. So in verse 2 we're told specifically that the famine was severe in Ahav's capital city of Samaria. Although no doubt this is referring to an extended area around Samaria. And so the king summoned Ovadiah, who was his house steward. And Obadiah was somewhat of an anomaly in the northern kingdom because he still feared and worshipped Jehovah. And because he did, he hid a hundred prophets of God from the homicidal Jezebel who was going around killing them so that there would only be prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth remaining. Now because of his position, he was probably a reasonably well-to-do man. But nonetheless, he undertook the subversive and the dangerous action of hiding these prophets from Jezebel and Ahab and providing sustenance for them at his own expense. Now the term prophets used here is a little bit ambiguous. The Hebrew sages comment that these particular prophets were probably students at, a, at the handful of the, the prophet schools and prophet colonies that had been established around Israel. Even in Samuel's day, we read about these prophet schools of which Samuel was the head of one. And now it cannot be that these were all prophets in the narrower sense of, of a special God-anointed messenger of God's oracle to one king or another in Israel. Nor were they seers. They were not the Elijahs and the Samuels and the, the Nathans of the Bible. We must always keep in mind that the more strict biblical definition of a prophet as being a person anointed by God for a special task was a result of God's selection and election, not of special education at a human institution. Rather, these prophet schools would more resemble the status of a seminary. And the so-called prophets were like seminary students. What were they being trained to do? Eh, probably they were an alternative to the priesthood, in a sense. That they kind of became learned in God's word. In some cases, maybe behaved like monks who lived apart from society in a, a purer colony of other prophets and they devoted themselves to worship. And in another sense, some became itinerant teachers of the Torah and likely were invited to officiate at religious festivals and, and other affairs from where, where the people wanted an aura of piety to it. But remember, in the kingdom of Israel at this time, the people had been cut off from going south to Jerusalem to the temple. And so the Levite priests that would have become prevalent in the kingdom of Judah, well, they were a rarity up north. And no doubt, no doubt, quite unwelcome by King Ahaz and by Jezebel. Well, in verse 5, King Ahav is getting desperate as the drought drags on and on. And so he commands Obadiah to go on a trek throughout Israel to try and find any remaining grass to keep the king's livestock alive. Now, this would have included his cavalry, his chariot horses that were so immensely valuable and needed for the national defense. 
The situation is so dire that the king himself will go and uh, go to one section of the country and Obadiah to another to scrounge around for animal feed. In fact, we're told that each man went alone. Most unusual and risky. But as governments do, they didn't want their people to know the true depth of the problems. All right? Otherwise, it could lead, lead to civil unrest. And no doubt, they intended on stealthily identifying this available grass, if they found any, so that King Ahab's troops could sweep in unexpected and confiscate it. Now we need to notice an important theme that's woven throughout this entire chapter, and that is the theme of division and separation. The wicked king and the God-fearing Ovadiah, meaning worshiper of Yah, divided, and they went on separate paths. And not surprisingly, it's the righteous Obadiah who first runs into Elijah who has been hiding in it as a virtual fugitive for over three years. And Ovidyah is shocked to see Elijah, but acknowledges his vaunted status before the Lord and so honors him by prostrating himself before Eliyahu. Elijah cuts to the chase. He tells Obadiah to go tell Ahav that Elijah has returned. But Obadiah is having none of it. Right, truly his thoughts aren't towards God's prophet's safety, but for his own well-being. He surmises that he'll go tell Ahav that Elijah's here. Ahav will come. Elijah will disappear like a vapor. And Obadiah is going to be left holding the bag. He'll be put to death, more or less, because the king is so frustrated with his inability to get his hands on Elijah. Well, after all, as Obadiah continues, the king has tirelessly searched for Elijah inside, outside of his kingdom. And it's as though Elijah were carried away by God. So in verse 12, Obadiah says that Jehovah is liable to carry you away to some place unknown and that'll be the end of me. This is not a Hebraic saying. Obadiah is convinced that something supernatural has kept Elijah safe from apprehension and that something has to be Yehovah. Elijah promises him he will not go away. He secures it by invoking a vow in Yehovah's name. Well, Obadiah informs the king. And Ahav comes to Eliyahu. And Ahav greets him with sarcasm and asks if this could possibly be the troubler of Israel that he's been hunting for for the past three years. And Eliyahu is not intimidated. And he thunders right back at him that the cause of Israel's trouble is not himself. It's you, king. It's you. And it's because he has forsaken the ways of God. He's instead thrown his allegiance to Baal. It's for this reason that the kingdom suffers under the gods under under God's oppression. Ahav made no response to this. Then Elijah told the king that he was to gather all Israel, the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Ashtoreth, Easter in English, and appear at Mount Carmel. 
And Ahav complied with this. Notice that the reason for this gathering is not given. But the Hebrew sages comment that without doubt, the king assumed that they would all gather together for Elijah to lead some kind of ceremony to pray for the rain to commence. And since Eliyahu had stopped the rain simply by speaking it, and promised that he said it would rain again until he said it would rain again, it wouldn't, the king figured that this was finally the moment when the drought would be lifted. The king was not so unwise as to interfere or threaten when he knew that what he needed most was about to happen. Well, when everybody had arrived, Eliyahu spoke to the huge gathering. Now recognize that the all-Israel comment in this context would have been clan and tribal chiefs and dignitaries. It didn't mean all the people who lived up in the north, which would have numbered perhaps three or four million or so. And in verse 21, excuse me, Elijah makes a demand to the people that was the crux of what we discussed on our little detour earlier in the lesson. Make a choice, he says. If Jehovah is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But right now, as he says to start verse 21, you're jumping back and forth between two positions. What it actually and literally says is, how long will you limp on both sides? That is, the illustration was of people behaving as though they're lame in both legs and their weight can't properly support, be supported by either leg. So they shift uncomfortably from one side to the other and then back again endlessly. They wanted Jehovah in some ways, but they wanted Baal in other ways. But when Elijah says, make a choice... The people stood silent. They wanted both. They didn't want to make a firm choice. They wanted to identify with Baal, and they wanted to identify with Jehovah. And Elijah told them that this is just not possible. The Talmud explains that everyone knows that idolatry is a horrific sin, but one might rationalize that it is at least better that an idolater also has the Lord in his or her life rather than to exclusively worship the ways of the world or be totally pagan, but this isn't true. When a person divides their loyalties, he or she can be led into a false sense of security that it is acceptable to God to observe some elements of paganism as long as some observations of the biblical commandments is also present. Even worse, it can not only deceive the worshiper, it can deceive deceive others and lead them astray as well. Another Talmudic thought is that a mixture of good and evil can do more damage than pure evil by itself. 
Because the good that one has learned or performed can lead one to think that one's sins can be balanced against that good. And thus harmony with God won't be interrupted. Actually, what this comment is warning against and what Elijah is demanding is one of the fundamental governing dynamics of God. And so this principle, this dynamic, is of course reflected in an often quoted New Testament statement in Matthew 6.24. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. Unfortunately, too many modern Christian denominations teach that with our modern intellectual abilities, with our advanced Western societies, we can do exactly that. This is becoming popularly known in our time as the emergent church. It also goes by such nicknames as the I'm okay, you're okay church. Which teaches that when you read the Bible, anything you take a scripture passage to mean is acceptable and right. That essentially there is no absolute truth, there's only your truth. And since Jesus is love, anything that we do in love is okay. And that since God loves His children, He would never punish us for our sins if we're saved. And that any belief, observance, tradition, or activity that we attach Christ's name to, no matter how pagan its origin or how opposite of the biblical commands, well, that's all now redeemed. And therefore, it's acceptable to God. See, this kind of mindset is nearly identical to how these Israelites operated that were standing before Elijah. And he was there to try and get them to see the light, to repent, to change. But if they didn't, then the consequences were, as we're soon going to see, death. And as we move along, we're going to find out, by the way, that for some reason, the 400 prophets of Ashtoreth didn't show up. Why, we don't, uh, we don't know. But I don't mind speculating, and in some ways, they were the smart ones. <laughs> they had to imagine that if Elijah called them together, it sure wasn't going to turn out good for them. Well, verse 23 says that Elijah called for two young bulls that would be used as the objects of the test. And the bulls were for sacrificing. That was something that was a common activity for pagan as well as for godly rituals. The Baal prophets were allowed to choose which bull they wanted for their sacrifice. And Elijah would take the other one, the leftover. See, this is interesting because the Hebrew gives us a little bit more information that's kind of lost in the English translation. There are two spellings for the Hebrew word two in the passage relating to the two bulls. Two spellings that create a slightly different meaning. Now the word in phonetic English is shenaim. Shenaim. However, one spelling is shin uh, nun yod mem 
and the other is Sheen Nun Yod with no Mem. The spelling used here is with the Mem, and it means two that are not the same. The spelling with the Mem added means two that are identical. So the two bulls weren't the same, meaning they were of different quality. Someone from among the Baal prophets chose, and then some of his underlings prepared it, meaning to slaughter it and probably cut it up in whatever manner the ways of Baal called for. But underlying the test was this. You can't light the wood under the bull on fire. It has to happen supernaturally. Baal has to send down fire to kindle the wood for the sacrifice. Well, prophets agreed. And they began their rituals that included shouting, jumping up and down, all manner of chaos. They did this from morning until noon, but no fire came down. About that time, Eliyahu started making fun of them. And he suggested that maybe Baal was indisposed on the toilet. Or maybe he was taking a nap. So they screamed louder. And they began to cut themselves with knives until they bled. Now the purpose for this entire affair was starting to become clear to one and all. God, through Elijah, would expose Baal and his prophets for the complete frauds that they were. The craziness now increased. And it went on and on and on until the late afternoon. Of course, nothing happened. Their firewood and the corpse of that dead bull laid there a silent witness to all of their futility. We're going to end this with this thought. All that was happening was a contrived spirituality whose effectiveness only existed in the minds of the confused. What was happening was nothing but a cheap, meaningless cacophony of noise and whirling dervishes and hollow religious activities that the participants hoped would substitute for true worship and obedience of the true God of all things. It never has. It never will. Let him who has the ears to listen hear.